A website is never finished, especially a B2B tech website. Welcome to Forward Slash, the podcast that explores how B2B tech companies can leverage their websites to achieve fast, efficient, predictable, and scalable growth. In each episode, I take a big issue affecting the B2B tech landscape and then pick the brains of marketing leaders around the world to learn how the issue affects the questions B2B tech marketers should be asking about their websites and how to answer them. Let's get into it. Tony Flores, founder of Growth Science, which is a B2B SaaS go-to-market strategy company, hot off the press, newly minted. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, Tony was also the senior director of demand generation at Refine Labs prior to founding Growth Science, where I'm, I'm sure you worked on a bunch of cool shit that, that you know, we'd like to learn a little bit about. But thanks for joining me, man. How are you? Of course, man. I'm good. I'm, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fine, man. I'm glad you're here. I've been... I've been looking forward to this talk. Like we're gonna be, um, we're gonna be talking about some cool stuff today. We're gonna be nerding out a little bit. Yeah, of course, <laughs> uh, if it's like our last few conversations, then yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is gonna be a good one. Um, you know, we're talking go-to-market strategy, mm-hmm. website strategy, and there's a market research framework that we both are kind of giddy on. I, I discovered it like a couple months ago and just been pretty obsessed with it. So really excited to talk about that. Cool. Uh, but I think. A good place to start is high level. I want to learn about you, growth science, and and how it came to be. I'll start at the top. Growth Science is a competitive strategy agency that works primarily with early stage B2B SaaS companies. Our primary deliverable is we help our clients find and capitalize on opportunities to compete more effectively within their categories. We work with a specific segment of category competitors. I lovingly refer to them as category challengers. They are those brands that are not category leaders, but they're sort of competing along the same dimensions of success that has already mm-hmm. defined the category. Um, they haven't carved out a groove of meaningful differentiation. They haven't established segment leadership. And in that environment, they tend to struggle to get the results that they're looking to get from their go-to-market efforts. So I've just kind of honed in on that group and said, hey, this is probably the most underserved group of category competitors in this space. And there's a massive problem associated with how they're going to market. And I think it's meaningful work to go out there and help that group compete more effectively. Totally. And we're definitely going to dive into how you're approaching go-to-market. How did growth science come to be? Like you said, I was at Refine Labs where I was a senior account manager working with B2B SaaS companies. At one point, I think me and my team were managing something like six or $700,000 a month in ad spend across search and social. It was a very uh, high pace, fast paced environment. The companies we worked with were growing rapidly. They had tons of funding. I worked with two amazing performance marketing managers that were very, very good at what they do. I learned a lot there. So it was a very, very good experience for me. But about two years before that, I had already started coming to these conclusions myself that the way B2B SaaS companies are going to market is flawed in some way. It was mostly Mm -hmm. operational, just looking into the different categories that exist and seeing a lot of redundancy in the messaging, seeing categories packed with 30, 40, 50 different (laughs) competitors, seeing a a massive lack of meaningful differentiation. And even as somebody who was doing marketing for these businesses and working with the founding teams every day and working with the sales team, not really knowing how to articulate the difference to somebody through the messaging, the promotions, anything like that. Can I give you an example of this? Is it okay if I share my screen? Yeah, absolutely. Please do. Here's kind of what I'm talking about. And I'll, and I'll use virtual event platforms. I'm not picking on anybody in particular, but I've been researching virtual event platforms now for a while. And it's a very crowded 
competitive category. So if you if you followed this space at all, right, 2020, COVID hit, virtual event platforms were sort of a fledgling category at the time, but then everybody rushed in to take everything they were doing offline and bringing it online. So it accelerated the category very, very quickly. Same things happened. Tons of competitors enter the space, tons of funding enters, and you know the category went from fledgling to mature very, very quickly. And you can see that not just by the, the amount of competitors that are within the space, but you can also start to see the maturity of a category based on how redundant and similar the messaging is, right? That these that these businesses mm-hmm. put out. So I can give you a perfect example. I, I pulled up five here from, from G2. On G2, there are listed 243 virtual event platforms. That's a mm-hmm. lot for any space. But here's five of them, right? So you look at Hubala, build better events that drive real revenue. Every event is an opportunity to grow both your audience and your revenue. We have webinars, watch parties, demos, conferences, and in-person events, right? Virtual event platform, coffee. But let's move on right. to coffee. Poppin, another potential category leader in this space, right? That's competing directly with Hubelow in many different regards. All your events all on Hopin. Create immersive virtual hybrid and in-person event experiences for your audience, no matter where they are. All right, let's move on to on 24. Deeper engagement, smarter insights, better results. Create webinars, virtual events, and personalized content experiences that drive engagement, generate first-party data, and deliver revenue growth. You kind of get the theme here. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so if I go across all, you'll, you'll see the exact same thing here. V fair, C event, uh, air meets, it's all, it's all very similar. And, and what winds up happening in these spaces over time is the category matures, right? People kind of get put into their general positions as either category leader or category challenger or segment leader. And then more and more competitors start entering that space. And then you start seeing these hyper nuances, right? That to a category connoisseur, might seem really meaningful and important, but to the category novice, right? It's very difficult to tell the difference, right? And tying back to this concept of challenger brands, whenever somebody's coming in and researching a category and they can't tell the difference, they can't tell why they should go with one competitor versus another, the tie always goes to the category leader, right? It's like the mm-hmm. brand, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM, right? And so right. That's, a, that, that's a big challenge that, I, that I've seen for this big giant swath of, of, of category competitors, right? So I was experiencing that. I was saying, okay, there might be something wrong with how we're going to market in general in B2B SaaS. And I had already started attributing that issue to funnel analysis, revenue attribution, and going through those things. I I sort of came to this initial belief that the way we're taking insights and translating them into action plans is very subjective and it's full Mm -hmm. of bias and there's no control for those things. And this was already a conclusion that I was coming to. So around 2021, I had this really awesome opportunity to go work for Refine Labs, right? Which was and still is today on the cutting edge of all things funnel analysis and revenue attribution focused, right? My thought was, okay, I'm experiencing this problem. I'm seeing these things. Maybe if I go work for the guy in the company that is the best at this, I'll be able to fill in the gaps and then everything would come into focus for me and I'd understand it a little bit more. And that's what happened. I went and I worked with Refine Labs and for about a year and a couple months, right? And I and I learned pretty much everything that you need to know about developing marketing information systems, extracting insights and correlations from those systems and making strategic recommendations to companies, right? It was very, very mm-hmm. good. But rather than leaving that with a new renewed passion for funnel analysis, it actually it actually confirmed my beliefs, which was, most of us are implementing amazing funnel analysis and revenue attribution systems. And then our processes for developing leading indicators, our processes for determining what to do next are just rife 
with bias and mm-hmm. subjectivity. And my opinion still is that the end result of bias, subjective marketing information systems is what we're seeing in these categories, right? Which is redundancy, lack of meaningful differentiation, a lot of confirmation bias. Um, so it was toward the end of last year, 2022, that I realized one, I was passionate about solving this problem because I think it's a big, meaningful problem to solve for a lot of challenger brands. And two, I can't do this from the position of an account manager at an agency, regardless of how amazing and reputable the agency is. Um, So that's when I decided to kind of go all in on growth science. And now my mission is to help B2B SaaS companies make better strategic decisions, right? And that involves looking at funnel analysis, but that also involves a much bigger component, in my opinion, of market research, competitor understanding, customer understanding, and how do all those things marry together to help a company find the right competitive opportunity within their market. And that's the problem that I'm trying to solve with growth science. Thanks for taking me through that. There's a lot to unpack there. I do want to tee you up here with a little bit of a backdrop. Reality of the situation, right? Smaller markets, shrinking markets, hyper-competitive, especially when if you're in like MarTech or Mm -hmm. or sales tech, right? Right. Longer sales cycles, bigger buyer groups, dark social, dark funnel. Like these are all issues that are playing into go-to-market that I feel Mm -hmm. we know about, but we're not taking advantage of and... Kind of overlapping what you said, what shifts need to be made in the way that we're approaching uh, how we go to market? One thing I've observed over the last 10 years is that most of us are actually really good at the tactics for going to market. Most of us in this space that have been in this space for a while, we can build marketing information systems. We can run LinkedIn campaigns. We know the generalities of SEO. We know the best practices of conversion rate optimization. And we all can go and do it, right? If we have the resources and the time and the buy-in from leadership. What is happening with many B2B SaaS companies is that they misunderstand the concept of competitive strategy. And that misunderstanding is resulting in them going to market the wrong way with the wrong messages, the wrong supportive programs, the wrong ancillary features, the wrong the wrong utilization of the tactics that we're all familiar with and that we all use on a regular basis. Uh, so a misunderstanding of what competitive strategy is, right? I believe that competitive strategy is the plan that a company has to pursue a defined competitive position within a market. And that assumes a few things, right? That assumes that that defined competitive position can be known and quantified. And it also assumes that you can arrive there, right? It's a destination on a journey, right? And that's what I think is a little bit different than how a lot of people think about competitive strategy. When I hear people talk about strategy, I hear them talking about website strategy. I hear them talking about social strategy, all these different things that are very disparate. But I think strategy in and of itself is a way to align an entire organization around a set of target customer needs and around a target competitive position. Um, Mm. We can get into that a little bit more if you want, but one, I think we misunderstand strategy just in general. Two, I think we develop a lot of our go-to-market plans from very biased sources, right? And so if you look at how a lot of B2B SaaS companies start their go-to-market efforts, that first plan is typically developed by founders or an early stage marketer, right? And typically they're using their subject matter expertise and their experiences to develop their initial go-to-market plans. And the tricky thing is that tends to work, right? Because most of the time businesses are founded based on a problem and no one understands that problem better than the founder, right? But when we start to transcend that initial use case and we try and go out to new markets that have never heard about us and that might have a little bit more of a broader need, right? That's when those founder-led, those internal-led go-to-market strategies start to break down, right? And that typically Mm -hmm. happens six to 12 months after a really solid demand gen effort begins. You see an early spike and then it gets difficult to scale to the next level. 
The third is that strategies are typically validated through the subjective interpretation of funnel analysis. And I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. We go and we develop a marketing information system and we collect tons and tons of data. And then we find correlations between upper funnel marketing and sales efforts and lower funnel revenue outcomes. And then there is this interpretation process where an internal subject matter expert or an account manager at an agency comes in and says, we found these correlations and this is what it means. And here's what we should do next. Right. And my opinion is that that process is so unbelievably rife with bias and subjectivity that there's no way a company can come to a genuine customer understanding through that process alone. Yeah, I'm going to say like, there, sorry to interrupt, but there's somebody that's missing in the room and it's the customer, right? The customer, right? And there's the, also this other issue that I've been thinking about. And it's when I started Grow Science, I was expecting a lot more pushback on the, the efficacy of funnel analysis to arrive at a customer understanding. I was expecting that to be the big challenge. But what, what has actually happened is people have said, oh yeah, I completely agree that customer understanding is super duper important. And we do that. Right. And I say, well, how do you do that? Right. And they say, oh, well, you know, we have NPS surveys and our product team sends a sends a churn survey out and all these other internal things. But as I research those things and I look at how they're doing it again, those questions are formulated and those ideas are formulated with the same type of bias and subjectivity that the interpretation of funnel analysis comes from. Right. So mm -hmm. um, I think that a lot of us and the reason why I think it's an um, a non-obvious problem is that a lot of us really believe that we're implementing the best practices and we are making strategic decisions. But from my perspective, from an academic perspective, and also my time running demand gen campaigns for some of the biggest and most well-funded category leading companies in the world, we're not hitting the mark consistently, which is why growth science exists. Yeah. Ignorance is not exactly bliss in this situation. No, not, really, not, not when you're spending a hundred grand a month on advertising and 30 grand a month on an agency <laughs> and you've got investors that are breathing down your neck. So you use a framework uh, that I recently discovered. I'm completely obsessed with it, man. I'm going to be honest on our fir first call that we had, mm -hmm. when you mentioned the name of the, the agency that pioneered it, it was like meeting somebody for the first time and then finding out that you listened to the same, like, alternative band. And I was just like, so giddy when you mentioned it. So it's Tony Alwick's jobs to be done steps mm -hmm. framework. And yep. this is something that he collaborated in the nineties with Clayton Christensen. Mm -hmm. The way that they view a market is a bunch of people trying to get a job done. And it's a very subtle shift, but it's so powerful. And especially the framework that he brings to it. Now I've got an entire episode with the head of marketing, John Dome. We dove in depth into it. So I'm just going to refer listeners to that episode right now. But that being said, can you provide just like a quick 101 on how you approach the framework, how you use it, all that good stuff? I'll give you the way I define it. And then I'll tell you the, the, the three ways that I really apply the framework within my customer research. Jobs theory in a nutshell is the idea that customers do not buy products and services, but rather they hire products and services to accomplish very defined known jobs to be done, right? And they measure the efficacy of those tools and services based on how well they help them accomplish that job based on very specific known customer success metrics. And the idea goes that if a business can extract these, these, these jobs and, and define these markets in such a way and understand how they define success by collecting these success metrics, then they have a roadmap for product and service innovation that has a high likelihood of creating actual value for the market you're focused on, which can be recuperated by the business in the form of higher prices, more market share, different things like that. Mm -hmm. In my experience, um, 
again, starting this journey about four years ago and really trying to dive deep into customer research and customer understanding, there's no better framework that exists for aligning with a set of customer needs and translating those needs into action plans that generate competitive advantage. I'm a huge fan like you are of Tony Olwick. No one ever wants to talk to me about it, but you want to talk to me about it. Right? So I'm all for it. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it's been a very interesting process for seeing how that general framework can be adjusted to meet the needs of B2B SaaS professionals. And, and that was actually one big challenge I was trying to overcome with growth science, because if you look at most customer, re like when I first got started, I was reaching out to the, to the jobs to be done guys, everyone that says they do research for jobs to be done and, and strategy and all that kind of stuff. And typically I was getting $150,000 quote and I was getting a 12 to 18 month time frame, And that is just not, I mean, I'm not Procter and Gamble. Right. McDonald's, you know, and neither are my clients, right? So what, what I set out to do with growth science to say, is there a version of this that might not be 100% of Tony's vision, Tony Olwick's vision for what jobs theory is, but can it get us to the point where a B2B SaaS company in a rapidly changing competitive environment can stay generally up to speed with the different markets that are engaging with their category and utilize that information to make good strategic decisions that compound their competitive advantage. And what I've put together at Growth Science, I think is does that, accomplishes that for B2B SaaS companies or more broadly businesses that don't have 150 grand in 12 months to figure out what they're going to do next. I think the really interesting thing about the framework is that it, it was uh, invented from the product innovation uh, perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Understanding that every job, regardless, whether it's you're brushing your teeth or you're like producing an event, it's got eight steps. And if you understand each of those eight steps, you can address them in a very meaningful and actionable way. Coming from WebStacks, like we, we view the website as like this living, breathing organism. It's not a set it and forget it. It is in and of itself a product. I think aligned with what you said, one of the questions that kept popping up from our customers was what's next? That's a problem, right? Like if a customer is coming to you and saying, what's next? Yeah. And they're bought into this idea that a website is an ever evolving product. There's got to be a bridge there between those two concepts. And this framework fills it because let's say your product is really good at one step, the execution. And I think in B2B SaaS, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm curious what you're seeing. In B2B SaaS, it's mostly that execute step, like in the middle. A few products bridge all eight steps. Yeah. And what I love about this framework is that if your product is here, your customers or your prospective customers still have a bunch of issues that they're having around it. This is how we can tell what's next, right? So it's like, first, if you address the, the main issue with your product. Now, if we talk it from a marketing strategy, the marketers can now go in and understand all the pre all the steps around it and create content resources, tools that lead into the product and out of the product to help get their job done. Yeah. That's how I'm viewing this. And I think you're right. And I think it's the sophisticated, sophisticated way of looking at it. Um, and what a lot of I, I've, I've observed when I'm talking to B2B SaaS companies that when they think about their product, they think about their technology. Right. But when you think about it from a jobs framework and you talk about the product being the main part of that execution step, and then there being all these other uh, preceding steps, right? Like setting your objectives, collecting your resources, organizing those resources, confirming that the resources have been organized the way they should be. Then you get into execution, then you monitor it, and then you make adjustments, and then ultimately you conclude, right? Those are the eight different steps of the jobs to be done map. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in B2B SaaS, I see execute and analyze. 
Um, very, very, everyone, go back to virtual event. Everyone has an amazing platform. And part of that is analytics, right? And it's very, very mm-hmm. easy to adjust and all that. I think you're right. I think the steps before execute are sometimes not necessarily ignored, but but businesses struggle to understand how they can um, service those job steps given their product design and the fact they're a software company. But it was actually one one really interesting way of thinking about this was, and this was actually a post Chris Walker from Refine Labs posted this week. He was talking about how all the different functional departments within a company have a responsibility for sales, right? And I and I would say the same thing. They have a responsibility for generating competitive advantage. So the founder is out there evangelizing. The sales team is out there creating, and this is his language, right? The, the founders or the, the sales team is out there generating net new conversations with members of a market. The, the marketing team is out there, um, you know, creating content, creating supportive programs, right? Educating people. And then uh, the product team is out there ensuring that, you know, product-like growth, you got the customer success team. It's all part of that, right? Everybody's Mm -hmm. contributing to the success of the organization. The reason why I like jobs theory and and translating that concept of jobs theory into a competitive strategy is because that end competitive strategy serves to align all of those functional departments around the target customer outcomes that have been identified, the target customer outcomes that are the foundation of that, of that competitive position that a company is pursuing. And, you know, we talk about jobs theory a lot. Another concept that I'm very passionate about is competitive advantage, right? And competitive advantage is basically the ability to do something that's important for a market in a way that's difficult for competitors to replicate. And I think that what jobs theory does is it gives us, it gives businesses a roadmap for activating all their different functional departments, right? And that complexity of activity, that compounding value of all that activity that makes it difficult for competitors to replicate. And if all of that's mm-hmm. happening in pursuit of a target competitive position, then as long as that business keeps their feet moving, they keep improving and keep doing well, right? Then you will maintain that competitive advantage. You will find that that place in your prospect's mind as the go-to solution for a particular circumstance. So I think jobs theory does a good job at aligning companies around a set customer outcome. Um, but utilizing that for the purposes of earning market share and generating competitive advantage is that next step. There's this book out there called Competitive Advantage, and it's by a a man named Michael Porter, who was a big Mm. uh, influencer in competitive strategy and and advantage at Harvard. And in his book, Competitive Advantage, one of the statements he makes is that businesses typically don't struggle to understand competitive strategy. What they struggle with is translating that broad competitive strategy into the specific action steps necessary to achieve competitive advantage. So with growth science, mm-hmm. not only am I going out there and saying, hey, these are your competitive opportunities and this is how I think you should go about pursuing them. But now let's work with each functional department and help them understand the objectives, key results, tactics, focus metrics that they need to align with to go and pursue that, right? That's a big step mm-hmm. of it's not just understanding the strategy and what you should be doing. It's how do you help the departments in your company go and take advantage of that knowledge? I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm interrupting here. I, I want to really lean into this point. Sure. Is this the solution to aligning teams finally once and for all? That's a big conversation that people are having right now, especially at bigger B2B SaaS companies. It's like everything's everybody's working in a silo. Yeah. And like you said, Chris Walker is trying to push everybody to uh, like all departments are responsible for creating demand. All, all departments are responsible for, for generating revenue. Yeah. The question is how, <laughs> right? And 
the nuance of the framework is that you have to speak to your customers in order to understand each step and the outcomes that looking for in each step, right? And I think that's also the other half of this framework is understanding how to conduct those interviews. Mm-hmm. But once that's done and you have all eight steps, you have outcomes, there's anywhere from between 75 and 150 different outcomes that you can help provide or assist your your prospects or customers with slap that down in front of your team leaders and they have everything they're just like what do we need like this is our business decision tree right now like this is everything that we need at one point functionally a a head of marketing is going to have to sit down and go okay here are the things that i'm going to do right i'm going to go run ads i'm going to write these messages i'm going to start this podcast and these are going to be the topics right All those things should be in support of a competitive strategy in pursuit of a target competitive position, right? And again, going back to why I think jobs theory is so valuable is because if you do it correctly, you know, let's say you're on the step of setting objectives, right? Well, minimize the amount of time it takes for me to collaborate with my team, maximize the amount of revenue I'm going to be generating over the next quarter. You, You have these min max statements that can be defined as customer success metrics and in my experience, when those are laid out properly, right, for a specific defined target market, and everyone agrees that that's the market that they're trying to, to service, then it becomes really easy for a head of marketing, for example, to go, well, I think from my perspective, as the guy who does guy or girl who does promotion and does content development, I can build these things, and I can execute this way, and I can be on these platforms. And I think by doing that, I can help address these set of target customer outcomes and then sales from their perspective, right? Doing talk tracks and, and all that kind of stuff, um, building their battle cards, building sales decks. Maybe they can help address a different set of customer outcomes, right? That are all within that same job map, right? And so that alignment is good because not only does it work you toward that target competitive position, but when you've got 20, 30, 40 programs that are being managed within an organization, all of which support a known set of target customer outcomes, that complexity is your competitive advantage, right? And so that's that's why it's so important at Grow Science. Like here's the strategy, but let's also make sure that we know what programs each of your functional departments is, are maintaining, right? In order to get there. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think it may not be the only way to align an organization. Sure. If your goal is to align an organization as closely with known, quantified, prioritized customer outcomes then yeah, I think jobs theory is is the best way to go about doing that today, right? Because it very specifically says, here's what they're doing, here's what they want, and here's why it's important to them. Go help that. Right? <laughs> and I think it's really, I think it's, I think it's about as simple as that, right? And there's obviously a lot of nuance in how you collect those things and how you account for your own biases and subjectivity. And it's easier said than done, right? But at the mm-hmm. end of the day, when you have that job map for the for the well-defined market created. That is, that is your treasure map. All, all the functional departments need to do is look at that and go, how well am I supporting these things? And then in, in, in best case scenario, you're doing this on a quarterly basis and you're updating your understanding of the market on a quarterly basis and you're distributing that knowledge throughout the organization on a quarterly basis. Um, and then that keeps you at the cutting edge of everything happening within your market. And it's, again, easier said than done, but it's a relatively simple concept when you, when you get into the nuts and bolts of it. It is a simple concept. Um, and I guess maybe if we to, to kind of drive it home, mm. we, we were talking about this, but it, it's a customer centric, uh, it's a customer centric framework. And even like my entire view has shifted. And, and I, th- I think it's, like I said, it's a subtle shift, but it's a powerful shift. It's, yeah. it's empathy based. Like you have empathy with this framework for your customer. Like you, you are wanting to learn about all of the little issues 
that they have in order to get a job done. And it's it's helping us become more empathetic, wanting to actually be customer centric. And then, and now it's like we can finally answer the question, or not finally. I'm you know. So that there are people who figured that this out, but for people who haven't, like this is a way to be customer centric and empathetic in, in your marketing. Now that all being said, and you might have outlined this, I apologize, this may be a redundant question, but can you take me through the version of, of the framework that you're using? I'm curious to learn about that. There's three sections or, or three phases to the way I'm functionally doing market research at Growth Science, right? So it starts before we actually get on the phone with customers. It starts with a, with a competitive audit, understanding the competitive landscape, defining the category well understanding the units of measurement that define the category. So it's a lot of category research and it's a lot of internal research to understand how a business thinks about the problem that they're solving, how they think about their competitors. So there's there's foundational work there, but eventually what happens is you have to get on the phone with members of your ICP and you have to talk to them, right? I do that talking to a, a client's closed loss to their closed one, right? People lower in their gotcha. phone. I also use a tool called Tegas, which I have fallen in love with. Um, it's a platform where you can literally go on and request to speak to certain people and their amazing account team finds you those people, coordinates everything for you. And for the cost of that expert's hourly rate plus 75 bucks, you can talk to anybody you want to. And Interesting. I love that tool, right? Because now it's not just talking to people that are fans of your client or the business that you're working for or don't like them because they're in closed lost or whatever it is. Now you're speaking to the market more broadly. Maybe they don't even know who your client is yet, right? And you can get a lot of good insight from there. But in terms of having these conversations, there's, there's really three phases to it that I think about it. The first is market definitions. And we kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, one of the biggest issues that I see in market research, especially in B2B SaaS, they are typically so vague and generalized that there's no useful specificity with them. There's no strategic value with them. You know, you have these, you know, persona of a CMO, right? At maybe a B2B SaaS company. And you see things like interested in driving efficiencies, wants to leverage tech to improve outcomes, you know, um, all that, that, that broadness, that generality, that comes from a market researcher having a poor market definition and trying to articulate insights that are broadly applicable across the board, right? Mm -hmm. But if your market isn't defined well, then you're going to struggle to struggle to find useful, depthful insights that are, that are good for strategic decision-making. Um, and, I, and I think the issue with that is really coming down to defining the markets. And again, I use jobs theory um, as how I define markets personally. And so the way they say it, again, I'm maybe paraphrasing a little bit here, but generally they're saying that a market is a group of people that are trying to accomplish a job. When you start with that framework, you obviously start to see that specificity, but I take it a level deeper. It's not just a group of people that are trying to accomplish a job, but mm. a group of people that are trying to accomplish a job and have selected their solution approach to doing so. And that third little element allows researchers to dive extremely deep into a specific use case and build a much more useful job map. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. So we've all heard the adage uh, that guy didn't buy a quarter inch drill. He bought a quarter inch hole, right? You've mm -hmm. heard that one before, right? Um, but the big question I ask is what if that guy needed a quarter inch hole in a place without reliable access to electricity and batteries, right? <laughs> so now mm -hmm. all of a sudden setting objectives and success outcomes, maybe one of the things they want to minimize is the calluses on your hand from using the turn crank thing, right? And so now the person could go and innovate the product and create something that swivels with them, right? Minimizing calluses on your hand is not a success metric that would be identified 
by somebody who's researching the cordless drill, the battery operated cordless drill market, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think that the more specific you can get into your target market and what they're trying to accomplish and what the context is around what they're trying to accomplish, the more specific that job map can ultimately become, right? So that that's one element of it. They, they have a bad market definition, CMOs at B2B SaaS companies, they're not, they're not accounting for what that group of people is trying to specifically accomplish and they're not accounting for how they think they want to accomplish it. And I think when you do that, you can get a high level of specificity. Now, as it relates to B2B SaaS, I also think a massive, and I, I can already see people hating me for saying this, but I think what happens is that in B2B SaaS, we still research roles and not businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so you'll see a mm-hmm. lot of research done. And I'm researching CMOs at B2B SaaS. I'm researching CROs at B2B SaaS. And um, I'll give you a, just another anecdote here. And one of my clients is in the aerospace fastening industry, right? They sell to Boeing and they sell to Lockheed and they do all those kind of things. And they were talking about how buyers operate, right, for their products. And buyers have a very specific set of success metrics. They want to get the product for as cheap as possible, right? So they go and they buy the product that accomplishes the, the basic job, right, but for as cost effectively as possible. But when that product gets delivered to maybe production who has to put the plane together, they break more, uh, the, the rivets break more, um, the installation tooling doesn't work with what they currently have, it takes longer to utilize it. And now the buyer who accomplished their success metrics have inadvertently hurt the success metrics of another department, another functional important department within the company. And that is not an uncommon story where individual roles have conflicting KPIs, right? So what I suggest people do that are researching is transcend beyond the role and research the business. So when I describe when I describe my 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 market definitions, it's not CMOs who are trying to generate more leads. It's nonprofits who are trying to generate more leads, right? Mm-hmm. And that and that understanding that it's a business focus. There's a much higher likelihood of the research that you do being universally applicable and understanding across all functional departments, right? And it sort of minimizes that conflict and. Again, that conflict is what results in those generalities in the market research, right? So focus on the business, not the individual and what they're trying to accomplish and make sure that you include what the business is trying to do and how they've elected to do it. And then from there, you can get a much more specific job map built and that translation to action plans is, is a lot easier. It starts with market definitions. It really, really does. I think that's the biggest place we get market research wrong is how we define our markets and what we're actually researching. I completely agree with you. That's something that I've uh, always had an issue with where we're defining an MQL and the only, pers- the only person you've ever spoken with in that company is that one person. And there's no understanding of the buyer group. There's no understanding of how it, lo- how it works, what the politics are. You know, the bigger the company, there's, there's going to be more moving parts. But this framework helps break that down because it's not just steps for the job executor, the person who's, you know, the, responsible for completing the job, but there's also the support team and there's the purchase decision maker. They have their own steps. They have their own jobs that they need to get done. At the end of the day, I just feel like ABM call it whatever you want, ABM, ABX. It's just good marketing. Like this is what you should be doing anyways, mm-hmm. right? And I think we, as marketers, we've we've kind of gotten lazy with the whole ebook, gated ebook, send it over to sales regardless. Let's get a 1% or less than a 1% close rate. Cool, let's just up the numbers. It's a numbers game. It's like, I'm calling bullshit on that. And yeah. this, like, this is helping us think more ABM, which is just good marketing. Um, yeah. Curious what your thoughts are there. Yeah. So what you just, what you just talked about, I mean, when I started with Refine Labs in 2021, that was the general premise. 
we're gating content and sending shitty leads off to sales. And if you just open up your funnel a little bit and look at this objectively, you'll realize that you're wasting a ton of your time and effort and a ton of your sales team's time and effort chasing and closing leads that did not show any sort of purchase intent. So that's one thing that's really cool about Refine Labs is in their model, they focus exclusively on high intent expressions of interest, right? Those that come in mm -hmm. from the demo request or the talk to sales team, right? Those, those, those are really what they focus on. Um, now, in terms of ABM, account-based marketing, right? You're going after very specific accounts and there's different tiers to that, but more, more or less, it's you're trying to find multiple paths into a company, right? And typically that's on that buying committee, right? And you're trying to resonate with them in a unique way. So yeah, from that perspective, it's good to understand very specific things about them because you're wanting to resonate with them. They're people and they have emotions and they have social outcomes and they have all these sort of things. It's very, very good. But I think we as marketers over-index on the individual and we don't take the time to learn about what the broader business objective is. Because at the end of the day, each of these functional department heads that we're trying to court, they're contributing to a broad, in, in a good scenario, we have to assume that they're doing it right. They're trying mm -hmm. to contribute in the way that they can to a larger set of business outcomes, right? And what a lot of people try and do is they try and do ABM, just focusing on that, that segment of the CMO's needs that don't overlap with the other departments. And they try to be very specific to that person, right? Whereas my opinion, this is what's been working with me for growth science is I demonstrate to them that I understand where their business is at, not where they're at, right? Because I'm selling to the business. The thing that I'm going to do is good for the business overall. Um, there are people out there that sell specifically into uh, certain roles, like the CMO role, the content creators, or maybe an individual product that's specifically for a CMO. In that case, be emotional, understand the social. But if, if you are ultimately trying to sell into a buying committee, you need to get them to align with one another on what the business is trying to accomplish. And there's not really a way you can do that at scale, but if you define your markets properly and you define it in the way like nonprofits that are trying to engage and grow their base of active donors and they have chosen events to do so, right? Now you have enough specificity in what that market group is trying to accomplish that if you reach out to those groups, right? There's a higher than, than random likelihood that you'll resonate with all of them in a meaningful way. Right. Mm -hmm. So continue to reach out to individual groups, continue to try and understand what gets them to tick. But what matters more than anything is that buying committee, that buying committee alignment. Right. And I think that starts with understanding the business objectives, not just the individual objectives. Not saying it's not important, mm -hmm. right? but as B2B salespeople, it's, it's business to business. We're selling to businesses. Right. We need to remember that that is the primary thing we're doing is we're selling to businesses, not individuals. And the business needs transcend the needs of the individual department heads. That's a big one. Philosophically, that's a big one for me. What you were just saying, as far as like understanding the business, that's not an easy thing to do. Understanding this, especially if you're trying to get into a larger enterprise, mm -hmm. that's not an easy thing to do. It takes time. There needs to be patience, right? Yeah. That's a whole nother conversation, but there needs to be a little bit more patience to, to, to generate demand uh, today. But if we, if we take this, this framework that we're talking about, if we understand all of these steps, that this account, like, and with ABM, account is a market in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. This account is trying to get this stuff done. Using content that speaks to those steps that your product doesn't address, that's a less intrusive way to start a relationship with a business where it's like, oh, you're trying to get this job done? Here's this resource uh, or, or this step done, I apologize. 
you know, you're trying to define your, your issue. Here's a template. You're trying to uh, gather everything. Here's a, a calculator, not intrusive, not asking for a demo, not asking for a trial. It's just coming from a place of empathy and help and respect. And as far as the ABM standpoint, I, I'm envisioning like microsites and you said it's not scalable. And I agree with you. I think a good ABM is not, it's never really going to be scalable if you want to do it ideally, mm-hmm. but could a microsite customize and personalize to an entire account with these resources, each page speaks to a different stakeholder yeah. in the buyer group, yeah. uh, speaks to the steps of, of their job that they're trying to get done mm-hmm. as a way to start a relationship with a company. Curious what you think about that. I think it's a great idea. But like I said, it, we all have a huge, massive arsenal of tactics and we're all pretty good at doing it, right? So it comes down to what, what we think is the most effective way of communicating an idea. I think, look, if you're going after like some million dollar, I, I've never sold million dollar SaaS deals before, right? I'm typically sure. in the 10000 to $50,000 range, right? And I'm sure if you're selling a million dollar SaaS deal, a 12 month sales cycle and, and specific account assets, like I've seen you know, you go to, you, I think it was like SAP or something like that. You went to their website and, and uh, if somebody from Target visited the page, the whole background became Target's branding and it had the little dog on it, right? And right. cool, man, that's it cool. Was cool. But it's also kind of only good if there's like 10 million dollar accounts that you're going after, right? If sure. you want, and then, you know, then you have the more broad demand generation where you're targeting everybody with ads and, and kind of stuff like that. There's a middle ground. For that right that that i think is still useful to an abm practitioner where you don't create these microsites for the account you create these microsites for the market the market yeah right, right described it right so again i'll go mm-hmm. back to the example i used recently which is nonprofits who are trying to engage their donors right and have elected to do so via events you can find that information in aggregate. You can go out and see who's utilizing virtual event platforms. You can use tools to figure out who's talking about events and promoting events. You can find that market. You can define that market. If you reach out to that market and you go, hey, we know that engaging donors is extremely important, but doing so through events is complicated because X, Y, and Z, you're relating to them very quickly. If you mm-hmm. go and you say, want to want to grow your donor base? Click here. You know what I mean? It's going to be vague and it's going to be general and you're, you're not going to you're not going to resonate. But if you get specifically down into that that use case and that context, that will be helpful. And again, at any point, it's going to be an educated guess because we're not in those businesses. Sure. But if you want to maximize the likelihood that you resonate with a group of people. Right. I think this framework that we've talked about defining the markets properly and building out their job maps, I think that's the starting point for it. I really, really do. And then how you go and execute that, I think a microsite strategy would be great. I never even thought of that specific to a market. But yeah, that 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 would be amazing. Right. And I'm, I'm mm. sure I'm sure web stacks can help teams crank those out quickly if they have a good ABM strategy in place. Uh, thanks for the shameless plug, man. Tony, this has been great. <laughs> I've had fun, man. I've had fun. Yeah, I, I just uh, I want to thank you for coming on for being willing to come on. You know, this is a this is a new podcast and, and we're, we're still kind of like finding our legs and figuring it out. So thank you for the support. Um, it's been really fun talking this shit through with you, man. Um, always great to find another jobs to be done fanboy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's, let's talk about it again, man. Maybe maybe in you know three or six months or something, we jump back on and see how things have evolved. Totally, totally. I've got a couple of uh, rapid fire questions before we close out. Uh, the sure. first one being like, considering everything that we just said, is there anything you want to get off your chest uh, that you haven't uh, around like go to market or, or, or B2B SaaS or, or starting a company, um, just like anything uh, 
uh, that kind of comes to mind. When you say start a company, right? And th this is just a little bit personal. This is a little bit Tony, right? But Please. when I was when I was thinking about going to market with a new brand, um, I did not want to go out with something that was redundant. I did not want to be another go to market guy, right? I did not want to be one. You know, there's there's a lot of people out there that are doing a lot of very similar things in the agency space, and specifically the agency space that supports B two B SaaS. Um, I wanted to come out with something that was, I felt was meaningfully differentiated, right? And I feel like this strategy component and this emphasis on customer research to guide go-to-market execution, I feel like I've accomplished that. Um, so to anybody that's thinking about starting their own venture, one, do it. There's no better time than the present, right? But two, make sure you're going out in a way that when someone says, why you and not this guy that says they're doing the exact same thing, but a little bit cheaper, Right, that's going to be the number one objection you have. This, these other fifty-five groups over here are claiming to do the exact same thing. That's hard to overcome, and that's that's a challenge across any category, specifically B two B SaaS, for all the reasons that we talked about this time. Mm -hmm. So, figure out your meaningful differentiation, and once you have that meaningful differentiation, you'll know what you as the founder should be evangelizing, right, and what ideals make up your product framework, um, and and really understand the broader thing that your customers are trying to accomplish that transcends your own product category, because those opportunities for meaningful differentiation and competitive advantage, they come from transcending your own product category, researching it, and then bringing elements of that value back into your category, right? That's how you define, that's how you create a winning competitive strategy. Um, so I encourage everybody to learn about jobs theory. And I encourage them to go out and practice as much as they can. I've spent like 10 grand of my own money these last six months just on Tegas, talking to people in different categories and seeing if I can figure it out. You just got to be active and you got to keep your feet moving, right? But think about how you're differentiating in a meaningful way, because that is going to be a prerequisite of success, especially in these crowded categories that we're in. That's awesome. Beautifully said. Uh, thank, you. thank you for that. Um, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to, is it Tegas? How do you spell it? T-E-G-A-S? T-E-G-U-S.com. T-E-G-U-S. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a resource that I think is invaluable and I hope becomes uh, more important to people over time in our space, right? Because it is a direct button click access to the exact person you want to know more about. And I think we should all be taking advantage of it. Very cool concept for sure. Yeah. How about sources of inspiration that you would like listeners to know about? Boom. I practiced this. Okay. First, right <laughs> off the bat, um, Chris Walker and Refine Lab. Mm. They are the experts on uh, demand generation and funnel analysis and revenue attribution. They are innovating in that space all the time. Um, they are on the cutting edge of what should and should not be done. And the team that works with him are super duper good at what they do as well. And they have this product that they've released called The Vault, which is essentially a membership group that gives a behind the scenes look at how they build these marketing information systems for their clients and what they use them for. So if you're getting into this space and you want to quickly up-level your, your tactical ability in terms of funnel analysis and, and analyzing those details, get into the vault and, and, and absorb what they have to say, right? It's because it, mm -hmm. it's very valuable. Um, Tony, Is there a free version of that? I think you might, there might be a seven day thing. I'm not sure, okay. but go to refinelabs.com and scroll down and you'll see the vault, right? And that'll give mm -hmm. you all the information. Um, uh, competitive strategy and competitive advantage, two extremely important concepts that I think just sort of broadly get touched on, but not factored into ongoing uh, ongoing decision-making at companies. Um, Michael Porter, right? His book's Competitive Strategy, Competitive Advantage, his articles in Harvard Business uh, Review, 
those are very important frameworks to understand. It's a framework very, very similar to how jobs theory is, is framed out, right? And it's mm. something that, that um, I think, in my opinion, it helps bridge the gap between the insights derived from jobs theory, right, to the actual specific action plans and tactics necessary to go in and take advantage of those insights. And I think Michael Porter and his work on jobs um, on um, competitive strategy and competitive advantage do a really, really good job at that. And there's a book called Understanding Michael Porter. Michael Porter is an academic and he has thick, a thick writing style, right? It's all very, very good, but it's taken me several reads to kind of understand it. There's a book called Understanding Michael Porter that gives you the gist of it. And I would suggest starting there. Um, That's funny. It's it's like being John Malkovich. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. Um, we um, we talked about jobs theory. Tony Olwick, uh, he has a free book, Jobs to Be Done, Read Competing Against Luck, which was uh, the thing that the, the book that he did with uh, Clayton Christensen. Um, mm. And then there's also some ideas in the Innovator's Dilemma and Innovator's Solution that I think are very, very good. And then one that has been recently uh, in, 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 in my world, right, has been this book called uh, Differentiate. Differentiation? Different? Different right? Mm. And by an author named Young May Moon. She's also out of Harvard Business School. And it's, it's a very good book on category evolution and meaningful differentiation, right? And I think those three or those four topics when understood fully, right, will help round out a marketer who's trying to differentiate themselves from the, the tacticians out there. Um, so yeah, those would be my four. And honestly, all those came out before 2021. Just go into chat GBT and ask for a book summary. You'll get the vast majority of what you need from that, right? But they're good concepts to, to grok to and try and implement in your day-to-day. Beautiful. That was probably the best answer I've received to that question. <laughs> like two hours before we jumped on. I think that's going to be a, a clip in of itself that we're going to post on social media, just all the resources that every marketer should read right now. Let's do it. Brought to you by Tony Flores. Any upcoming events that um, is worth mentioning that you're going to be... Uh, taking part in honestly just those that let me speak at them i don't know what those cool. are yet, but uh, we'll, we'll see i'll put it out into the into the world when when the time comes but if you want to get in touch with me before then right find me on linkedin um you know that's probably the best ways to get in touch with me or you can text me um phone number is 949-306-9095 text me if you want to talk about this stuff <laughs> that's awesome that was, that's also the first <laughs> thanks for that um cool man this has been great uh Again, thank you for everything. Learned a lot. Going to be taking a lot of this in, in internally into WebStacks. Um, and sounds like this is not the last conversation. Hopefully, it isn't the last conversation that we can, we're going to be having. But thank you for coming on. Of course. Look forward to the next time.